0: Um, the genealogy of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. <laughs> And you crushed it. That was amazing. Let's give it up for Susan and the genealogy. That's, those are not easy names at all. Do you guys ever read Calvin and Hobbes? I have one for you. Look, comic. It's actually also in your sermon notes if you took one of those. But uh, So Calvin, in this comic strip, Calvin says to Hobbes, if heaven is good and I like to be bad, how am I supposed to be happy there? Hobbes says, well how will you get to heaven if you like to be bad? And he says, let's say I didn't do what I wanted to do. Suppose I led a blameless life. Suppose I denied my true dark nature. I'm not sure I have that much imagination. Maybe heaven is a place where you're allowed to be bad. (laughs) The brilliance of that comic strip works the same way that the story of Ruth in the Bible does, in that it raises a question. It raises the question of the separateness of good and bad, the separateness of holy and profane. The story of Ruth, and particularly that genealogy that Susan just read at the end of chapter four, seems to blur these lines. The good work of God in the world seems to be littered with the actions of questionable people. And we all are broken. We're all hurting. We're all filled with shame at different points in our lives. Every single one of us has a sense at some point of being broken. And the story of the Bible is the story of humanity trying to cover their shame. Let me get the phone real quick. (laughs) Do you hear that? No one hears that but me. Okay, all right. The, um, The story of the Bible is really just people covering their shame, right? First with fig leaves and then with all sorts of other things, with performance, with popularity, with proving their worth, covering up our shame. And the story of God is that God's grace is strong enough to redeem even our most questionable decisions and to even bring new life out of them. So today we come to the end of this story in the book of Ruth. It's the final chapter of the story. And in this, we see Ruth and Boaz married. We see um, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, kind of their story coming to a close here. And everything is working out well. Naomi, who began in bitterness, experiences the joy of seeing a grandson being born to her, of Ruth and Boaz married. So the happy ending of this story is uh, its interesting because that is happening in the story, but there's also this bit of tension at the same time. There's a specific attention at the end of Ruth in chapter 4 drawn to some characters that the readers would have known about. It's a story from Genesis 38, the story of Tamar and Judah and their child Perez. It is a crazy story being referenced here. It's the story of Tamar and Judah, and uh, Tamar tricks Judah, who is her father-in-law, into sleeping with her in order for her to bear a son and continue the family line. That story is being referenced at the end of this book of Ruth. So all this happy ending, and then this story referenced, very interesting. And Ruth, at the end, ends with the genealogy that Susan just read. And Perez, that child from Tamar and Judah, is in the line of King David, and King David is in the line in the genealogy of Jesus. So this happy ending to the book of Ruth, shows just how crooked the line to God's earthly kingdom is. Really, the big reveal at the end of the story is that these very unlikely people are in the line of King David who are in the line of Jesus And in a world where lineage and genealogy are a big deal, we see that God is working even in the crookedness of these stories, these questionable people, these questionable actions, even in the lives of these people. And so then the challenge to us is to see that God is working out his purposes even in the midst of our questionable decisions and the questionable lives of people around us. The genealogy of Jesus shows us it's through questionable people that God ultimately brings salvation to the world. And the final chapter um, is showing God's plan of redemption for his people. And it is anything, when you look at these characters, it's anything but smooth and sanitized. It is not that. So throughout everything in the story, I mean, you think about Naomi, the back-and-forth nature of her moods, the slow to catch on, like Boaz is kind of slow to catch on to providing for Ruth, all of these different characters, all of their different struggles, their questionable actions, they are all a part of God's purposes working out. In chapter 4, verse 13, the narrator tells us that the Lord made Ruth conceive. And that verse, that stands out as the only place in the book where the narrator makes a statement about God's actions. All the other references to God in this book up until this point are found through the mouths of characters with different Perspectives, different thoughts. They express a variety of beliefs about the nature and purposes of God. So, Naomi in the story, her perspective is colored, tainted, um, perhaps distorted by her grief. What she says about God is distorted by her grief. In a similar sort of way, Boaz, what Boaz says about God is influenced, perhaps distorted by the fact that he is wealthy and has a good standing in the community. Ruth, in the story, she's the non-Israelite, the convert to her mother-in-law's faith. She has the least to say about the Lord. So we see these different characters in the story, and Jesus, the Messiah, son of humanity, Savior of the world came from a family line that is about as questionable as they come. And that's really the point. The point is he came to redeem the questionable. The book of Ruth really is a story about the nature of God's love. When you think about Ruth, First of all, she's persisting in offering Naomi love and support in the beginning. And Naomi is resisting, and Ruth is persisting, and that is a picture of God's persistent love even in the face of our rejection. And all these stories, you read all the different characters in the genealogy, it is more like a confession of sins than like a list of virtues. And this is all a part of the point that God came to redeem the questionable. It is God's grace, not our own merit, that brings forth the redeemer of the world. That's the theological point being made. So we can read the genealogies and we can say, what's the point of that? Why is that even in there? But it's showing us that God's grace is not about our own merit. That he came to redeem even the questionable. So in the genealogy, you see these people, Tamar, Judah, the foreigner, Ruth. Rahab is listed in Matthew's genealogy later. Uh, Rahab, pagan prostitute. David, a murderous adulterer. It's all questionable line of people. And I don't know about you, but sometimes there are those moments in our lives where we think this set of circumstances just took me out of the game or my response to this set of circumstances just took me out of the game of God's working in my life. I received a text message not long ago um, from someone in our community. And I think if we are honest, we probably would all say any one of us could have sent a text like this to a trusted person in our lives at a moment of disillusion and pain. And I am going to warn you, this text message that I'm going to share with you, It's raw. Um, I'm not going to clean it up for you. Um, I imagine that Naomi, in the story of Ruth, may have penned such words in her disillusioning pain. This is what the text message said. I've had the hardest day. I've cried through most of it. Trust God. Who is God? He doesn't care about me. Why would he do this? Why is he so mean to me? Where is the redemption and goodness and new life and hope? I'm tired of hope. It's a dead end of brokenness. I don't see it. He's an asshole who finds joy in seeing me in pain. I can't come to church tomorrow because my heart is so angry and hurt and in pain. I don't know who God is, but I'm pretty sure he is not a fan of me. Trust him for what? He's not there for me. He allows pain so that I know him. That is so effed up. Who is God, really? so that's probably the last time anyone in this room is going to share a text message with me, right? (laughs) No, I I have permission to share a somewhat edited version, taking out a couple details with you. And the reason I share that with you is because I think what's most personal is most universal. And I think every one of us in the midst of disillusioning pain, might have words like this, might have words like Naomi. It says, just don't even call me Naomi. Call me bitter. When we're in the midst of circumstances that are so painful, we're we're blind to see God's presence. It, It can be hard to see where God is. And these genealogies, They can seem just like abstract and historical, but these genealogies show that God is completely undeterred by the many questionable people doing questionable things, sometimes in the midst of their pain. God never stops providing for, loving, offering grace to these people. It reminds us of those words in Romans 8:38 and 39 when Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's just this anthem of like, there is nothing that would deter. Julian of Norwich, who is a... Um, Christian mystic and anchoress um, in the late 1300s. Her major work was Revelations of Divine Love. She talked at length about the relationship of our sin and God's love. And in writing about her work, one author said this, in Julian's view, we need to be comforted in face of our sins. And the basic comfort is the assurance that even if we do nothing but sin, we still cannot thwart God's purposes. Let that sink in. This is true of frequent, grievous sins and even of mortal sins. None of them can stop God loving us or accomplishing his purpose even if we do nothing but sin we cannot thwart god's purposes why because god's story of redemption is not dependent on us it's not built on my perfection but on Christ's. my imperfections are actually, like we've talked about before, my imperfections, they're actually the cracks through which God's light shines in, which is why when we're so busy covering our imperfections with those fig leaves of performance and popularity improving ourselves and medicating ourselves in every other way of all the addictions that we take on to avoid our pain, we're not able to experience the per- only perfect one living and flowing through us. It is the cracks through which God's light comes in. When I'm weak, He's strong. You know, many people can get behind the idea of forgiveness, but it seems that God is actually using questionable people and the questionable questionable things that they are doing for his purposes. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, David. God's bringing good out of the questionably bad. In Romans 8, we read, He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters in all things. In death, in divorce, deep debt, depression, God is at work, And his purpose, according to this passage, is not my comfort. His purpose is not my ease. His purpose is not my achievement of the American dream. His purpose is that I might be conformed to the image of his Son in all things. Do we have eyes to see that? That in all things, God is at work, his purpose to conform us to the image of his son. Jesus promised in this world, you're going to have trouble. It's a promise. And I will never leave you or forsake you. When we sing, your presence, God, all I need it's all I need do you believe that is that true of your life in the darkest of hours can you say when everything else is stripped away your presence God that's all I need without it I'm not even living your presence is everything to me and your presence can never be taken from me That's why when we build our lives on any other platform than the presence of God, we're on shaky ground because it's God's presence and God's presence only that can never be taken from you. It's almost as if we don't have to be perfect in order for God to work in and through us which is the opposite of what religion would teach us. It's almost as if we don't have to be perfect. Everybody just... <sighs> In their book, The Spirituality of Imperfection, Catherine Ketchum and Ernest Kurtz relay a story. It's an interesting story that's just stuck with me. It's the story of a bishop who's traveling on a ship, and he stops at this island, and the bishop meets these three fishermen... And these three fishermen speak in broken English. And when he meets these fishermen, uh, the fishermen say to this bishop, they can see he is a bishop by how he's dressed, and they say to him, we are Christians. Some missionaries came to our island, and we are Christians. And the bishop is like, that's awesome. And the bishop says, "Um, do you know the Lord's Prayer? And the fishermen say, no, we don't. And the bishop is like appalled. He's like, you don't know the Lord's prayer? How can you be Christians and not know the Lord's prayer? And so the bishop says, well, then how do you pray? How do you talk to God? And the fishermen say, uh, we just lift our eyes to heaven and we say, we are three, you are three, have mercy on us. The bishop is appalled. He's like, that's a heretical prayer. i got to teach you the Lord's Prayer. So this bishop takes the whole day to teach these three fishermen the Lord's Prayer, and he gets to where they've got it memorized perfectly. They've got the formula down exact, and he's so proud of himself, and he leaves them. Now they know the Lord's Prayer. And a couple months later, he is sailing again by that island. And as he sails by, he's walking on the deck, saying his own prayers, and he recalls with pride how he taught those three primitive fishermen the Lord's Prayer. And as he's you know, remembering with pride that moment, he looks off in the distance and he sees this light moving towards him. And as the light gets closer, he recognizes that these three same fishermen are walking on the water to meet him. And when they get close enough to speak with him, they say, Bishop, we thought that that was you, and we had to come out because we have forgotten that lovely prayer that you taught us. (laughs) We pray our Father who art in heaven, and then we forget. The rest, so can you please remind us and teach us once again what that prayer is? And the bishop, completely humbled, says, oh, my friends, go home, look to the heavens, and pray, we are three, you are three. Have mercy on us. It's almost as if We don't have to be perfect for God's purposes to work in and through us. And in fact, our attempts at perfection or hiding our imperfections, they only keep us from experiencing the life of the only perfect one St. Ambrose of Optina said this, If you find that there is no love in you, but you want to have it, then do deeds of love, even though you do them without love in the beginning. The Lord will see your desire and striving and will put love in your heart. Bill Wilson Founder of AA spent many years as an alcoholic himself, and then he goes to the Oxford Group, a parachurch ministry for men in the '30s. He becomes sober, and he goes and systematizes his recovery process, that has served millions of people, helping people out of addiction. Through those cracks, God's light has shown. It's almost as if we don't have to be perfect for God to work through us because it isn't about us in the first place. I was hearing a story Bob Goff, author, talking about Kabi, the witch doctor, in Uganda. Witch doctors in Uganda for many years would kidnap children, do brutal things, mutilate them from for ritual sacrifices, and then leave them to die. But one time, a witch doctor did this, and the child lived. And that child was able to testify. So Bob Goff, American lawyer, actually goes to Uganda and brings this witch doctor to trial. Gets him convicted, convicted gets him sentenced on the testimony of this child. And Bob talks about how he went back to Cobby, the witch doctor, visited him in prison. And Cobby said he was very sorry for what he had done and was in need of forgiveness. Bob Goff talks about how he didn't, he didn't want to extend forgiveness to the man who had done such brutal things to the man he had tried and sentenced and convicted. But he shares how Kabi eventually came to faith in Christ and now is sharing God's love with other prisoner, prisoners in that prison who are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. Like God was able to redeem even Kabi and his situation to further his kingdom. If God can redeem and work through this person, I think God can work through you and through me.